last Sunday for leading us uh, so wonderfully and eloquently just to clear something out in the in the hymn uh, for our Calvinistic friends who are robust on the third stanza it says also freely given at the end wooing us to heaven now people will think well you know is God wooing us to heaven is he a soft God um, but this is actually talking about irresistible grace that those who are elect from eternity past right when the gospel call comes which are which is the sweet these beautiful words these wonderful words when they come to you 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 will be wooed to heaven and you cannot resist it's not a wooing whereby you're trying to woo a girl you know come to me and the girl is is, is rejecting you no 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 that's not the wooing that is being spoken of here so i thought i would clear that out so that uh, you don't think that was seeing heresy um or, or error <laughs> for those with a very keen eye and magnifying glass when it comes to singing let us now turn uh, our attention to jonah chapter 1 verse 11 to 16 jonah chapter 1 as we uh conclude the results of disobedience or our study on disobedience from the prophet jonah jonah chapter 1 verse uh, 11 to 16 and i'll read from the english standard version uh, the bible or the version that i'll be preaching uh, preaching from then they say to him what shall we do to you that the sea may may quieten down for us for the sea grew more and more tempestuous he said to them pick me up and hurl me into the sea then the sea will quiet down for you for i know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you nevertheless the men rode hard to get back to dry land but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them therefore they called out to the lord oh lord let us not perish for this man's life and and lay not on us innocent blood for you O lord have done as it as it pleased you verse 15 so they picked up jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging then the man feared the lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice for the lord and made vows let us pray Oh dear Heavenly Father, even as the words of Charles Wesley echo in my mind, my gracious Master and my friend, assist me to proclaim the glories of thy name. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to, this privilege to, to, to delve into your word. May heaven itself come down to us may we be taken by wonder and awe of a holy god these mysterious truths that we so often take for granted may they spring up alive and 
these wonderful words of life that woo us to heaven, we cannot resist them. And I pray, O Heavenly Father, that if there's anyone in here who does not know you, in here and online, pray that you may save them from sin. You may sanctify them. Even for those who know you, we pray that they may grow in grace, be delivered from vices uh, of sin, the, the devil's vice grip. We pray that you may uh, continue to be with us for the rest of the service. That you may help me to be clear, steer clear from error, and help everyone at the hearing of my voice to concentrate and not be taken away just for this moment because these are eternal matters, matters of life and death. Hear this our cry because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now friends, as a, as a church, we have been going through the book of the prophet Jonah. And we see that briefly, Jonah had direct instruction from a holy God to go to Nineveh and call them out for their evil because their evil had come up to God. That's how the Bible describes it. But Jonah instead boarded a ship in the opposite direction against God's will and he paid for it dearly. We see that from verses, from chapter 1, verses 4 to 10, we, we have covered two sermons on disobedience. We looked at the consequences of disobedience in the first sermon, and in the second sermon, we looked at lingering or staying upon disobedience. And today, we hope to look at yet another aspect which is the last straw of the matter, if you will, which is or are the results of disobedience. Basically, we'll say, what happens as a person if you stay in a life of rebellion long enough? And we see that the verses before us give us a very clear picture Sorry, the verses before this give us a very clear picture. The narrative unfolds dramatically. The pagans are questioning Jonah and are demanding answers. For now the storm that they were in was worsening. And the situation was getting to a stage where destruction would be the only inevitable end. You look at uh, chapter 1, verse 10 there. Then they were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. But we see that the storm grew worse. And I want us to learn a few things from the result of Jonah's disobedience. Four points that I have for us today. Number one, from verse 11, we see that the results of disobedience are often dire. 
often dire. Number two, we see from verse 12 that at most disgraceful. At most disgraceful. Number three, we see from verse 13 that they are difficult to recover from. Difficult to recover from. And I'll be highlighting this as I go. Number four, we see that the results of disobedience call for deliverance. Call for deliverance. Let us start together as we see that they are often dire. Verse 11 together as we study. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now you might ask, you might ask yourself, why did I use the word dire? What am I simply what, what I'm simply meaning is that the situation was now urgent and needed a serious response. Otherwise, they would die. This is what the word dire means. Urgent. The pagans, in similar fashion, like a few moments before, quizzed him. But this time, it was not quick-fire questions, but one that was simple and straightforward. What shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us? Their, their question shows that they had paid attention and, and understood the consequences of Jonah's sin or Jonah's disobedience. Therefore, it was crucial that the one who sinned had to pay for sin. The culprit had to pay, otherwise they would all perish. They had to now empty out the most heaviest cargo. If you remember before, they even emptied out the, 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 the ship of, of bags and whatever. But now, they were left with this big, big heavyweight in the ship. And even so, the question will come to you, dear friend, because of your life of disobedience, what shall we do to you? Who is in sin? It could be the church that asks, friends that asks, or even civil magistrates that ask you. The world may ask you, what shall we do to you? A one who is living in disobedience affects everyone around them. One who is living in sin affects the people around them. So it could be that you have murdered someone. The civil magistrates would then ask, what shall we do to you now that you have done this? We see that in verse 30. They said, what shall we do to you? They asked this because the, the, the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now literally, this means that this meant that the sea was walking and raging. It was, it was an idiom. The sea, was, the, the sea was getting worse and worse. The storm was getting worse and worse. And friends, when someone is in disobedience, 
The people around them literally freeze in their boots because they do not know what to do with this person. This hot potato of a person they have in their midst. <clears throat> the situation was dire and they knew what to do with him, but they had to inquire, what shall we do with you? Friends, it's true. With those who are even unbelievers. For example, if a child in your house is living in a manner that is unacceptable, that even in pagan circles, they ask them, what are we to do with this child? What are we to do with you? But the Apostle Paul goes a little further. He doesn't ask questions. He demands for an answer. Turn with me quickly. He demands for action. Turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5. The first two verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even amongst pagans. Listen to that. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. It means that the, the Corinthians were laughing about. You know, you're in sin. Okay, good, we love you. Love them into the kingdom. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Mudisei. Remove this person from fellowship. But we see uh, that even the, the, the fishermen in Jonah's narrative exhibited much more composure and even what I would call compassion because before they dealt with him they had to inquire but Paul here says no, in, no inquiry why should you inquire on someone whose lifestyle is even not tolerated amongst pagans Remove him. And there's a lesson to be learned there, dear friends. There are times that the church is called to wield the axe there and there. And it is my prayer that we don't have to do that as a church. Which is why we preach this way. Which is why we call people to repentance. Those who are in disobedience. Which is why we call people who are entertaining what they call small sins or, or white lies to say those are actually not white lies. They're not actually small sins. A little leaven leavens the whole lump and soon this thing will grow and devour you. Don't give sin a chance. It's like a tick. Step on it. Step on it. Once it starts coming, once it starts crawling around the house, step on it. It's like a baby cobra. If it's moving around the house, step on it. 
Don't let it grow. Dire situations call for dire measures. Wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The due penalty or the due wages is death. Don't give sin breeding ground. If you attain a lustful thought, kill it. If you attain, if you have a thought of stealing, kill it. Of duping, kill it. By the Spirit. Back to our text. We see that The, the consequences of disobedience, secondly, are at most disgraceful. At most disgraceful. Verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quieten, quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. You know, when I used to watch the sport of cricket... They have what is called a golden duck. Where a, bats, a batsman walks into the pitch after one has been taken out to bat. And whilst he's batting, if he goes out on the first ball, it's called a golden duck. And after that, he would then have to face the crowd in what is called the walk of shame. So his head is down and he's just walking. And everyone is jeering. They're not cheering. They are jeering. They're saying, Oh, you loser. This is exactly where the prophet Jonah was. He was in a disgraceful situation which was about to end in humiliation. The great prophet who was meant to be calling to the Ninevites to repent was now saying to the pagans on the ship, Pick me up and hurl me into the he was meant to be preaching the gospel. He was meant to be ministering. But there he was in sin. Ready to be humiliated. His end was nigh. His end was upon him. And let me say this, friends. We should make it a point that by the help of the Spirit... We do not hold on to sin because the results of sin are always disgraceful. It will end in shame and guilt. And it's not a great place to be in because when people see one who was zealous for the Lord, now disgraced, they will ask questions and those questions need to be answered. This is even the reason why when one is found to be in something that people did not expect or envision, that person will literally disappear from the face of the earth. I don't know if you've ever met people like that or Christians like that. They move on to a new place, new WhatsApp number, new identity. I'm no longer so and so, I'm now this. New occupation, 
They're trying by all means to extinguish or blot out the shame. New friends, new social media. It is a disgrace. It's shameful. It is when you're in the state that you know that God is dealing with you in a state of humiliation, in a state where Jonah was. He was at the end of himself. His sin had been found out. He was practically naked. He was almost as if to say he was standing, Lord, do as you please to me now. That is what happens when somebody's in sin. Listen to John Kelvin. He says, but Jonah, no doubt, knew that he was doomed to punishment by God. It is uncertain whether he, inter he then entertained a hope of deliverance. That is whether he confidently relied at this time on the grace of God. But however, listen to this, it may, it may have been, we may yet conclude that he gave himself up to death. When you are in sin, dear friends, and it comes out to the fore, and the destruction that follows, you feel like you want to die. Die! This is also true with hypocrites, isn't it? Those who are not in Christ, those who resist the gospel, who reject Christ, those who ha happily, willfully live in sin, and those who hate God, those who are following the course of this world, the devil, the lustful desires, they will be disgraced by God. Whether in this life or in the life to come, they will be disgraced by God. And what comes to mind is Matthew 8, 11, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you the context after I say the words. The words read, I tell you, Matthew 8, 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And friends, the whole context is that there was a centurion. This is the faith of the centurion. He, the, the centurion came and poured himself out to Christ and said, you know, you, you can heal my servant where you are. And then Christ said, I have not seen faith like this in the whole of Israel. And that's why he made this point. And the point is that those who will be in the kingdom of heaven will be those who had faith in Christ and Christ alone. And faith in Christ will be the deciding factor about who enters the kingdom of heaven, not nationality. Because the Jews thought that, well, since we are Jews, we've got automatic entrance. And likewise, those who come to church and are unconverted would say, just because I'm in a church, I will go to heaven. 
Likewise, those who were brought up in a Christian home where the father and mother are Christians and they were brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord but are unconverted, they would think themselves to say, I will be in heaven because of my parents. Christ Jesus says, I tell you. Many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And you will miss out. <clears throat> Don't miss out on that blessing, friend. Don't miss out on that blessing. Make sure you've entered in. Even as we're saying, I am resolved no longer to linger. I am resolved. I am not satisfied with the quality of life I'm living, so I'm resolved no longer to linger. That's what our resolve should be. That's what our cry should be. That's what our posture should be to say, I'm, I'm not supposed to continue living in this secret sin. I need to be brought out by the, by the power and help of the Spirit. If it is the fact that maybe you are a drunkard and you don't want people to know. After church on a Sunday, you put on your hypocritical clothes. And you go to the bar and you get drunk and on Monday you're back to the world. And that is your manner of life. Be resolved to today and say... Bring me out of this, lest I miss out reclining, reclining at the table with the patriarchs. Come, come to Christ today. He calls you. He is saying, not he has said, yes, he has said, but he is saying, come and leave your sin, your unbelief. That was the second point. At most, disgraceful. Let's look at the third point as we study the word together. I hope we are together, friends. I hope we are trekking together. Sure, there are questions. Number three, we see that the results of disobedience are that... Uh, 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 the result of disobedience is that it is difficult to recover. It is difficult to recover. Verse 13 is very clear there. Look at the, verse 13 with me. Nevertheless, the man rode hard to get uh, back to dry land. They could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. The poor fishermen tried to rescue the situation. They tried to retrieve what had been spoiled or what had been damaged by the prophet Jonah, the fugitive prophet. They tried to row against God because what God had willed would come to pass. The more they sought to row, 
With one who was in disobedience, the more the sea raged and the very nature that the almighty God created submitted to the master's orchestration to hinder the sailors. Don't get confused. What I'm basically saying is that everything was against the fishermen and Jonah. Even the winds and the waters. Echoing the words in the New Testament. Even the wind and the waves obey him. <laughs> they rode. They tried. Jonah said, throw me in. <laughs> I'm the one. Like, I don't know, you know. Let's try and skate a situation. It's like someone who's in, who's in the church and is a sexual predator. Meant to be convicted. And then the church says, ah, let's skate around the issue and protect the guys. Anyway, we should protect, we should love people. Do you know what that guy is going to do? He's going to ravage all your children. Because you have not taken heed of what God has said. <clears throat> Thus we see that it was difficult for them to recover. A touch was a move. You could not reverse what had been done. You could not take shortcuts about what had been done or through what had been done. Listen to John Kelvin once again. I have to borrow his words. The Lord then designed to show here that his displeasure could not be otherwise pacified than by drowning Jonah in the sea. He could, God could not be pacified. He could not pacify God. You can't give God a dummy like a child. Though, as we shall presently see, he had something greater in view, but in the meantime, this is worthy of being observed, that the Lord intended to make Jonah an example, that all may now know that he is not to be trifled with, but that he ought to be obeyed as soon as he commands anything. <laughs> John Kelvin. As soon as God says, no, you get up like a soldier and you march. Because the moment you trifle, the moment you say, grace, 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 love, 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 I'm okay in this sin, is the day you died. You're in danger. You're in danger. When God says, let's live this way, let's oblige. Because, friends, he means well. Why would God take away your joy from stopping you from killing yourself in Mjolo? Huh? If God loves you, would he allow you to live out your desires, your heart's desires? If we say, Felix, live out your heart's desires, brother.
He means well. But we see that there are certain life choices, even, that are difficult to recover from. There are certain patterns of sin that when one fully is willfully, sorry, when one is willfully indulging and enjoying them can lead to their demise and destruction and death. Such that when you try to repent or to turn, it can be difficult or impossible. <laughs> it can be difficult or impossible. For example, in Hebrews, we notice an interesting passage. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. And I'll read from verse 15 to 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Verse 16. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it in tears. Oh, friends. There are some things that are irreversible. If we live in a life of sin, a life of disobedience, cherishing hell, of course the context was that Esau treated his birthright with contempt and looked and took for granted God's blessing such that he sold it for a bowl of soup to his brother. Genesis 25, 29-34. So afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he cried over it. One one way can, one, one decision you make can destroy your whole life. You can think, well, I'm, I'm fine where I am, Pastor. No one will find out anyway. God loves me. And I will tell you from His very word that if you continue in disobedience, you will destroy your life. You will destroy your life. You know what areas you're disobedient in. I don't know. You know what sins you're entertaining. I don't know. You will cry and cry. It's just like a man 
who cheats on his wife and his wife goes on to divorce him. He can cry and cry. The church can sympathize with him. But the wife is gone. <laughs> the wife is gone. You can cry over the woman. This is what we're seeing here. This is exactly what we're seeing in the life of Jonah. And this is exactly what life teaches us, even as we live. Beware. There are danger signs everywhere. Everywhere. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Let's see, fourthly, from verse 14 to 16 from Jonah, that the results of disobedience call for deliverance. The results of disobedience call for deliverance. Verse 14 to 16. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from his raging. Verse 16, then the man feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I want you to note, friends, the central verse there is verse 15. The fugitive prophet, though he was going to be swallowed up by the fish as a means to save him from death and show him mercy, was now being held into the sea as the supposed end to his life. And what does the Bible say? The Bible say as soon as they threw him. No sooner did Jonah's strand of hair touch a drip of water from that ocean or sea, it ceased. <laughs> The problem had been solved. The sin, the sin had been dealt with. But I want you to note a somewhat shift from the pagans, from calling out to their gods in verse 5 to calling out to the Lord Yahweh here. Let us not perish for, uh, for this man's life and lay not on us his innocent life. We learn that in the midst of disobedience, from these pagans, by the way, we can call out to the Lord for deliverance from sin. It's not too late. When one is in disobedience, though it's a disgraceful thing, though now there's seemingly no hope, we can still call out to God for deliverance, just like the pagans. They did. 
they wanted to be delivered from the storm. You also note that in their cry for deliverance, they acknowledged that this was brought about by a holy God. The pagans acknowledge God's sovereignty. Now friends, when it comes to uh, these pagan salvation, there are traditionally two views that I want to quickly highlight because some people will say, well, what happened to the pagans, etc., etc. And, the, and, and there's follows. One view is that their fear was outward and not inward. And that's why it's not explicitly mentioned that they got saved. It's not in the text that they got saved. Just says that they feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered vows. That's what it says. That's the first view. The second view is that they did become saved. That by God's sovereign appointing, he used Jonah's disobedience for the fisherman's deliverance. <laughs> God, in his sovereign plan, orchestrated everything to perfection. Such that the disobedience of the fugitive prophet brought about the pagan fisherman's deliverance from sin. And it is true, friends. And herein lies my conclusion for this observation of this verse. That my disobedience may be used by God to bring many to the fold. My unfaithfulness doesn't mean that God has stopped working or ceased to be powerful. I should work out my salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is a privilege to be a child of God. That the sin, that sin has consequences, and God is not to be mocked. His patience and forbearance, his loving kindness, his grace toward us should not be toyed around with. And thus we are to look to Christ. And be saved. He is our only hope. He is our only redeemer. In this life. He is the only one. Who can sustain you. And preserve you from a life of disobedience. If you look to him, look to the sun and live. For there is only one name under heaven, or there is no other name under heaven through which man must be saved. And it is Christ Jesus. If you forget everything else in the sermon, remember that there is a fountain filled with blood 
drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And when we even think about coming to the table this morning, we need to contemplate where am I in my walk with Christ? Look back down memory lane. Not very far, just a week ago. Have my actions or even my manner of life displayed one who is walking in obedience? Or have I been exposed so severely by the Lord? It's a time to reconcile with God through the partaking of the table. It's a time to say, Lord, I'm, I'm resolved no longer to linger. Charmed by the world's delight. I need things that are nobler. These are the ones that have allured my sight. I need things that are holy. Things that are set apart. There's a time to turn to the Lord. But... There's also a warning to say those who toy around God's grace must not partake because you're in danger. Don't blaspheme God. Don't toy around with His grace. Don't continue in disobedience and unbelief. It's a warning for us all, friends. It's a warning for us all. Amen.